Reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Now after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to, to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in, Amer in, 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 in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me down into the pool, and when the water is stirred up, and while I am going down, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not, not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The idea of a pandemic is something that's become very popular in film and in fiction these days. In 1994, there was a true story called The Hot Zone. I, I remember hearing this book on tape and being scared to death. You see, the idea behind this pandemic was actually a true story about the Ebola virus or a strain of it hitting a group of uh, monkeys at a research facility in Reston, and what happened if that got out. I, I determined after having listened to that book about 15 years ago to never go near another pandemic story, movie, or book. And I was pretty successful until a few years ago when a friend of mine, who I'm not sure if we're friends anymore, uh, tricked me into watching a pandemic film called 28 Days Later. I was scared to death. I, I don't like seeing these things. And, and there's a whole genre that's out there, the whole zombie genre that's built around this pandemic idea, contagion, World War Z, The Walking Dead. And the idea is there's something out there that can infect you, and it's spreading. And if you think about it, it's terrifying. It plays on all of our fears about something that's completely out of control that could infect all of us, and there's nothing we could do about it. And it's always asking the question, these pandemic films and, and books, what if, what if we were all infected? The funny thing is that we're, we're not terrified by the true pandemic. But we should be. The Bible makes the claim that we are all infected that there's something that is in all of us that is more deadly than any disease, than any Ebola virus out there. 
It's underneath the problem of violence around the world, and we see it in everyday life. And it's the pandemic of sin. It's, it's one of those things that we talk about often here, is that we live in a fallen and broken world. And that fallen brokenness is not only seen in the slums of India, but everywhere we go, in every person. The claim of the Bible is that each of us are already infected. We are offenders who live our life apart from God. We live selfishly, going our way. And we create effects of sin in our lives and in the lives of those around us. We see this effect of this infection in our lives because we've also dealt with the pain and suffering that comes when other people sin against us. You know, all of us start off when we're younger pretty optimistic and hopeful, and then as we get older, we get wiser, right? But the reality is what we get is, is more often cynical and scarred. We've dealt with a lot of wounds. We've been hurt one too many times. And so we lose our optimism in, in place of a, of a very real hardened cynicism. But the reality is we're just dealing with the effects of sin on us. This world is broken. And we see that in things like physical and mental illness. We see it in tragedies that we cannot avoid. And in the end of this pandemic, which is death, which is there for all of us, we are sin-infected. And not to just start on a very negative side, but let's keep piling on here if we can. The Bible makes it very clear in Romans 3. It says, all have sinned and fall short. None are righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. No one does good, not even one. That, that's what the Bible claims about us. We're all sick. In Ephesians, Paul puts it, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And by nature, by nature, we are children of wrath, like all of humankind. So to put that in summary, everyone's already infected. You can't avoid it. You can't hide. We are all infected by this sin thing. But the good news is Jesus, right? The good news is Jesus enters this fallen and sinful world and gives a cure. And in John 5, we have one more incident, one more incident of Jesus entering a fallen place seeing the sick and sinful and bringing healing and salvation. So what I'd like to do over the next few minutes this morning is look at that story. And while the story is actually a, a lot about what you do with the Sabbath day and who Jesus is, I want to look at the healing and ask the question, what does this passage reveal about God and the nature of God? I want to ask the second question is, how does Jesus do the same thing with us that he did with the invalid in this story? And the third thing I want to ask is, how do we respond to Jesus? How do we respond to him personally? And how do we respond like Jesus to the sick and sinful around us? So the setting, as we talked about, is the pool of Bethesda. Let me read that in verse 2 and 3 of John 5. 
Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So commentators on this suggest that there is a backside to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the temple was the most holy place in all of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. It's where all of the religious focus of the entire nation was, was pointing to. And very often, those religious ceremonies involved sacrificing animals. It was believed that this pool was on the backside of the temple. And it was, a, it was called the Sheep Gate was where this pool was because that's where the sheep that were going to be sacrificed were brought into Jerusalem. And it was in these pools that the sheep were washed before they were brought around to be sacrificed. And lying around this pool were scores of sick people, invalids, paralyzed, blind. So this area outside of the temple was an incredibly religiously unclean place. You see, actually, in, in the Jewish circles of Jesus' day, sheep were unclean animals. So to be a shepherd, to handle sheep, was to make yourself religiously and ceremonially unclean. On top of that, being near and touching a sick person, especially somebody who was paralyzed or blind or had leprosy, meant that you were religiously and ceremonially unclean. In other words, this place, this pool on the backside of the temple was infected. And it was the sort of place that if you were a religious person, if you wanted to be really good, you never went there. And the religious in Jesus' day would not have gone near there. But Jesus does. Jesus goes there. He goes where the religious won't go. Now, all these people who were sick were lying there because they had this superstition, this belief that occasionally the water would be stirred up by the angel of the Lord. And if you were the first one into the water, you'd be healed. Now, this was a superstition that, that faithful Judaism did not adhere to. But these people who were sick thought that when the water was stirred, which was probably from an underground spring, if they were the first one in, they'd be healed. And most of us would have said, looking at that, that's just a false hope. That's a false hope that you're going to be healed if you get into the water when it's bubbling. But we are the kind of people that when we see problems, we want hope. I remember being a kid going to visit my grandparents outside of Pittsburgh. They lived in a small coal mining town in western Pennsylvania. But by the time I was a child, it was a run-down, impoverished town. And my sister and I were playing with some of the neighbor kids. And I remember this one girl who was two years older saying, Oh, we're going to go to Disney World this year. And I, I was about eight or nine thinking, Oh, that's pretty cool. When are you going to Disney World? And she said, oh, my dad said that when he wins the lottery, we're going to go to Disney World. And even as an eight or nine-year-old boy, I knew how sad that was. That wasn't going to happen. That was a false hope. The hope that you're gonna, your dad's going to win the lottery so you can go to Disney World. The hope that if you're the first one in the pool, you won't be paralyzed anymore. We want to have hope in something. And while we might laugh at the sort of delusional hopes built on superstitions or the chance of winning the lottery, we push that aside around here and we put our hope instead in ourselves. 
We are control people who can control our environment. We have money and savings. We have nice houses and full refrigerators. We've got everything under control. Our relationships, our kids, our cars. But according to the Bible, the hope in winning the lottery or hope in your own control are both false hopes. But these people lying around the pool needed hope in something. And so they put it in the fact that the pool would be stirred and maybe they'd be the first one in. And we go on reading about the the main character that Jesus is responding to in this episode. It's a man, in verse 5 we read, who had been there for 38 years, who was an invalid for 38 years. And we read in verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew. Jesus sees the man and he knows what's wrong. You know, I love when Jesus sees. When Jesus sees somebody, he doesn't just see the outward, he sees their story. And he wants us, the the narrator wants us to walk in with Jesus and consider this man's past 38 years. In that day and age, a person, if they were male, barely lived past 40. So essentially his entire life, he's been an invalid, unable to use his body. See that man's life. Consider the kind of suffering he's dealt with. How hard it was just to take care of himself, to clean himself, to feed himself. How much pain he had been in. How much shame and embarrassment for his inability to control himself. As somebody who was an invalid for 38 years, he was unclean, which meant people would not want to go near him for fear that they would be infected too. Alone, rejected, suffering, hopeless. Jesus sees and says, consider this man's 38 years. And then Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The reply that the man gives, according to some commentators, is actually kind of a snarky reply. It's a, Uh, yeah, of course I want to be healed, but have you seen my legs? And how am I going to get in the pool? No one's dragging me over there, and by the time I pull myself over there, somebody else has already gotten in. Of course I want to be healed, buddy. Jesus walks right past that. Get up. And at the power of Jesus' words, life comes into the man's body. Feeling comes back. Strength returns, and he stands. Take your mat and go home. Take your camping mat, roll it up, and go home. We read Isaiah 35 earlier, which talked about the blind and the lame. It talked about the world being like a desert, but that one day when God would come, the blind would see, the lame would leap, and springs of water would come forth in the desert lands. Those who'd been cast out would be returned. When Jesus starts walking the earth, you see the creator pushing back the effects of the fall in every person that he comes in contact with so that the possessed are restored to their right mind so that those who have leprosy have their bodies cleansed, 
so that those who are paralyzed are made whole again. Jesus does this as an act of mercy, as an act of creation. And what's interesting in this entire passage is there's no indication the man had faith. The man isn't seeking Jesus. Jesus enters the pool, and he's not like, hey, Jesus, over here. Most often when you see Jesus walking into a town or into a place, there are people begging him to be healed, grabbing hold of his cloak, the centurion chasing him down saying, heal my servant, the woman in the midst of the crowd who grabs the back of Jesus' cloak saying, I want to be healed, people begging on the side of the road, Jesus, son of David, heal me. This man says nothing. Jesus is somebody he has no idea who he is, no recognition of this man, Jesus. And then even after Jesus heals him, there's no indication that he was thankful. He didn't turn and say, my Lord and my Savior, thank you. He just gets up and walks out. And in fact, if anything, he rejects Jesus outright. We see this in verse 10 and 11. When the religious leaders ask the man, Hey, why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath day? Don't you know you can't carry it? What rabbi told you you could? And the man blames Jesus. I don't know. Go find that guy. He's the problem around here. He's ungrateful. He's not thankful. He doesn't really believe. And yet, Jesus heals him. Why? What does this tell us about Jesus? You know, as we look at Jesus, the Bible tells us we're looking at God himself. Jesus says this in verse 17 when he's responding to the religious leaders. He says, my father is working until now and I am working Jesus makes the audacious claim that he is the creator of the world at work in the world. And so if you want to know what God is like, don't just make up stories or ideas in your head. Look at Jesus. Jesus reveals God. And what do we see when we look at Jesus? We see a God who sees the plight and the trouble of every person he comes in contact with. I told you I love that phrase, Jesus saw, Jesus sees. If you look it up in your Bible, time and again, when Jesus sees somebody, he's moved to compassion and loving action. In John 9, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, Jesus sees the blind man and heals the blind man so that he can see. In John chapter 11, Jesus sees Mary the brother of Lazarus who has died, he sees her weeping and he has compassion and raises her brother to to life again. In Luke 19, Jesus looks up and sees Zacchaeus and calls him down and Zacchaeus' life is transformed. In Luke 15, a picture of God is seen in the father in the prodigal son story and it's that famous little snippet when the father is looking down the road and sees his prodigal, sinful son, and the father goes and runs to hug and grab his son. When Jesus sees, he is moved to compassion 
and mercy and loving action. And that's the picture of God that Jesus wants us to see in him. And what we see in this whole episode is that what Jesus does for this man is the same thing that he does for us. Here, he's dealing with a man's physical illness. With each of us, he wants to deal with our spiritual well-being. We talked about it earlier. We're all infected. We're all spiritually invalids, unable to save ourselves. There's lots of ways to illustrate the infection that we deal with. Just over in the past week, NBC's reporter Richard Engel was in Sochi, uh, where the Winter Olympics are being held. And as a test case, he opened up a new cell phone and a new laptop. And within minutes, both had been hacked. Now, that's a great fear of any of us who has a cell phone, a laptop, a tablet. Within minutes, if you're in Sochi, you probably have a hacked system. And when your system is hacked, it's infected. It's infected with viruses. It is a broken system. The Bible makes the claim that our systems have been hacked. We are by nature infected with a virus called sin. Another way of illustrating it is to think about ourselves as something like the Titanic. We like to think of ourselves as the sort of ships who maybe we have some trouble here and then, we just need to bail out the water and get ourselves righted. Trying to right your life with goodness or religious practice. It's like trying to bail the Titanic with one bucket. It's not going to happen. The hole is too deep. The brokenness is too far gone. We're sunk. And I know a number of you have seen this illustration, but I'm going to pull it out one more time for those of you who haven't, or just as a reminder. We are infected people. We're inherently flawed. So what our lives are like is like a glass of water. Now, just a glass of water like this, anyone would would probably be okay to drink it. But our lives actually are more like this. (laughs) Contaminated. Now, all the goodness and trying to be really good is kind of like trying to fish out the contamination in here. I think I got some of it out. Anybody want a drink? I I fished some of it out already. It should be okay. The best, most religious life is no better than fishing dirt and spit out of the sinful infection of your life. You can't get it out. You can't make yourself well. You can't make yourself whole again. We are spiritual invalids. Thinking that your karmic good is going to outweigh your bad is like assuming that if you just get in the bubbling water, you'll be well again. 
It's a false hope. We are sinners. We are infected. We are the walking dead. But there is good news in Jesus Christ. God sees our need and our sickness and has come to meet it. In John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The cross is the cure to our infection. And it's not that when Jesus comes along, he just fishes out the dirty water. He gives us an entirely new glass, filling it with his spirit, So that even though we are sinners through and through, when God looks at us, we are as pure and holy and righteous as we ever will be in heaven. If anyone is in Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new glass of water. The old infected self is gone. The new in Christ self has come. Jesus says to the man lying there, do you want to be healed? And implicitly, this story, like almost every story you get to with Jesus, is saying, do you want to be well? Jesus wants us to respond to him, to see and recognize our reality, to admit our sin and helplessness, and to see in him our only hope. The way we respond to Jesus It's by seeing our sickness and seeing him as the cure. And lastly, that should call us to respond to others like Jesus does to us. You know, I pray that our church and every church would be a hospital for spiritual invalids. No more faking that you're okay. Because you're not. You know, when I was a boy, I used to play sports with with kids in my neighborhood, but most of them were four or five years older. And if you're a seven, eight, nine-year-old boy playing with 12, 13, 14-year-olds, there's one rule, don't be hurt. Never cry, don't ever whine, always be tough, even if you get hurt. And so I can remember being tackled hard to the ground and letting out one of those cries that a seven-year-old can't control. And when one of the older boys came over and said, Johnny, how are you doing? I'm fine. Everything's okay. No, I'm fine. Let's keep playing. Because I knew if I started crying, they wouldn't want me to play anymore. Is that the way our church is? That you can't admit that you're hurt? This should be a place where you can admit that you're hurting. Where you can confess the depth of your own sinfulness. Where it's okay to be in need and to ask for help. And we, like Jesus, should be the kind of people who care for the sick. And listen, I'm not just trying to inspire you or guilt trip you. The reason we do anything is because we are driven by the gospel of grace. When you're driven by the gospel of grace, you don't reach out in mercy and kindness to people to make yourself feel better. Rather, the gospel transforms the way we look at ourselves and others. So I approach myself with deep humility, recognizing I am sinful and you are sinful. And my sin is not better or worse than yours. So it's okay to be honest. And because I recognize just how infected we all are, I actually expect brokenness and sin in everybody's life. When we grasp the gospel, nothing should surprise us. And yet, 
When we grasp the gospel, we should have full hope and confidence in Christ. He has done it all and can make us well again. Jesus entered the unclean pool and saw and loved the ungrateful and the invalid. And he calls us to do the same, to enter the unclean places. And not just the unclean places, just to enter every place. I mean, think about it. Everywhere Jesus went, he entered fully and was looking for those in need. So wherever it is that we go, we're called to do the same thing. If we have received the healing and mercy and transformation of Christ, we're called to go and do the same to others. And that means probably peeling back the layer on the people around you. We live on such a surface level, but all you have to do is go a little step further and you can see the effects of sin and the fall in everyone's life. I had my first annual physical for the first time in three years just this week. And uh, I'm hoping that higher numbers are better, right? It's like scores in sports, so the higher the number, the better, cholesterol, blood pressure. If not, yeah. But when you're going through your annual physical, they, they talk to you about your physical history and your family history. And my guess is if we looked at anyone's spiritual history, we would see the effects of sin year in and year out. And if you looked through anyone's family, you would find the same thing. I recently went to a a prayer retreat with a number of other clergy. And while we were there, one of the things they did, which I thought was really powerful, was they did what was called a father's blessing. And then the next day they did a mother's blessing. And what they did was they had somebody come up front and stand up there. And in place of your mom or dad, they, they read prayers, a prayer to you, a letter to you on behalf of your parents and on behalf of God that said something like this, I realize I am not your father, but please allow me to stand in for him and say the things that God your father wants to say to you. It was amazing to hear people talking about the impact of that on them. Ministers, clergy, who needed to be reminded of God's love for them as their loving father because of the wounds they had experienced because of the sinfulness of this world. Peel back a layer with anyone around you and you're going to find these sorts of things. The issue of violence is not just something for places like India. You just need to look around our neighborhoods. On the front page of the Washington Post today was an article talking about the pandemic in Indian Native American culture of violence against women. One in three women who are on reservations will be raped or assaulted. Three in five will deal with domestic violence. The numbers are not statistically much better across the rest of America. 20 to 25% of all adults will have experienced some sort of violence, domestic, child abuse, sexual abuse, assault in their lifetime. That means one in four houses on your street have dealt with the sort of thing that we're talking about in the Locust Effect video. One in four people in this room. Will we be the sort of people who look deeper 
will we be the sort of people who open up and feel like this is a safe place? Look around. The effects of spiritual infection, sinful infection, are everywhere. You know, it's hard growing up in Northern Virginia. If you're a teenager today, you have to deal with identity challenges, pressures and expectations, pushing you into addictions and depression. On Friday of this week, scores of teenagers all over Fairfax County wore black because a few days earlier, the bodies of two high school boys from Langley High School had been found, two separate incidents of suicide. Langley High School is one of the best schools in the country. Kids who live there live in the most perfect, ideal environment you could possibly live in. How could they have problems? My guess is that's probably some of what circled through some of these, these two boys' heads. You've got to have it together. You've got to be strong and capable. And if you can't, what kind of despair and hopelessness were they cycling through? How alone had they felt for weeks and months? And let me just say, if you in here have or are or have ever dealt with thoughts that your life is not worth it, talk to somebody, a friend. If you're in high school, middle school, talk to Rod or Matt, talk to me. Go to the people that will pray for you during communion. Here's the reality. Every one of us is sick. We are all infected. And all have experienced the effects of the fall in this world. Let's be the kind of people who welcome the sick people as fellow sickies. And let's be the kind of place where physical, mental, social, and spiritual needs are expected and are dealt with with love and grace. The gospel calls us to honesty and humility. All of us are infected, spiritually disabled. But the gospel also gives us confidence and hope. Each of us can be cured of what really ails us because of Jesus. Let's pray. God, our loving Father, you know our brokenness and sin. You know our infection. You know our inability to get ourselves into the pool. And you love us. May we experience your love for us in one another. May we be the kind of people and place where grace and mercy meets brokenness and sin. And may we find healing and wholeness and restoration and new life in you, Jesus our only Savior and Lord. Amen.
Peace.